We're in Romans 15 this morning. We're going to be in, a, if you will, various passages, but we're going to sort of begin and end in Romans 15. As we look at this text, we'll look at a, a variety of passages together. So Romans 15, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. It's Paul speaking to Rome. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand what it is that you have superintended by the Spirit, what it is that the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, wants to say to his church, not only to the church at Rome to whom Paul's writing, but to the church in every age. May you help us to understand your word and apply your word, and may Christ be exalted in us and in our church We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are aware that this is Jordan Fitch's last Sunday with us as an elder. I don't mean he won't come back to visit at times. It's not his last Sunday with us, I pray, ever. But his last Sunday with us as an elder here. He is headed to Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary with the goal of being a minister of the word on a full-time basis. And we thank the Lord for raising Jordan up to serve in the music ministry, to serve as an elder, and we pray that Christ will use him to bless his church even more than he has here. This reality of Jordan going, as well as, or combined with the reality that we're sending off Josh and Bree in the next month or so, has caused me to reflect on what I'd want to say to young gospel ministers. And I think there's one thing I want to say to young gospel ministers. I want to encourage you to adopt Calvin's motto. And I'll explain why in a minute. I don't know if you know what Calvin's motto was, but John Calvin had a motto. Everybody around him was aware of it. Here's what it is. I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. If the Lord Jesus has your heart, if you've offered it to him, then he has your mind and your talent and your treasure and your future. There is, if you will, nothing that you're withholding from him. When Christ calls you to be a gospel minister, He gets everything from you. You offer him everything without reserve. You hold nothing back. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value. I just want to stop and hear that. If you're a young person thinking about gospel ministry, I do not account my life 
of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Jordan and other future gospel ministers, you offer yourself completely and without reserve, immediately, without hesitation. Like the men who laid down their nets and followed Christ when he called them to make them fishers of men. So you leave everything behind and you go. Christ offered himself for us as an atoning sacrifice. Now we offer ourselves to him. And as a gospel minister, he's given you one job. What does Paul say it is? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We preach Christ, as Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. There is your method. That's the thing you do. You preach, proclaim, announce, herald, and there is your message. What you're preaching, proclaiming, heralding, announcing. Christ, his person, and him crucified, his work. So this morning I want to consider the gospel minister's priestly offering. If Christ's priestly offering is himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, we also, if you will, the gospel ministers, are also offering a kind of priestly offering. Christ is our great high priest, offered himself as a atoning sacrifice for our sins, and the gospel minister is making a kind of priestly offering as well. And I want you to hear this young men going into full-time ministry and young women married to them, Chantel, for example. I hope you're able to listen to this as well. Because I don't think often enough people are counting the cost of this. I want to consider the offering, the priestly offering the minister of the gospel makes under three headings. First, the minister of the gospel makes the priestly offering, if you will, you make the priestly offering of yourself to Christ without reserve. You make the priestly offering of yourself to Christ without reserve. Second, you make the priestly offering of gospel proclamation. I'll get into that in a minute. And third, you make the priestly offering of the fruit of the work of your ministry to Christ. So let's look at the first one. Make the priestly offering of yourself to Christ without reserve. Look at Romans 15, 14 again. Paul writing to the church at Rome. He has not visited them yet. He would like to visit them. But he's been out doing ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. So a circuitous path in which he's preaching the gospel and planting churches from Jerusalem all the way to modern southern-day Albania. And he says, I haven't been able to come to you because of that. And in fact, I want to come to you, but first I have another work to complete. I have to go and take an offering to the church at Jerusalem because there's been a famine there and they're in need. So I need to do that, but... As soon as I've completed that work, I'm going to come to you, the church at Rome. But I'm only going to stay for a short time because I'm going to come to you on my way to Spain because people in Spain have never heard of Jesus, so hopefully you'll help me on my way there. But look what he says. I myself am satisfied about you. This is the church at Rome. My brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. This is a 
fairly solid church. They know the word. They're walking with the Lord. They're able to instruct each other. But, verse 15, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Stop for a second. In Romans 1 through 14, Paul is essentially written very boldly on a number of items to instruct the church where they needed to be shored up. Look, we understand this. Every church, no matter how great this church is, every church under heaven has some mixture of error, doesn't it? Every single one. If the church disappoints you, get used to it. Why? It's filled with people. And we haven't been perfected yet. And also, maybe become aware of the fact that you are disappointing other people in the church. It's the way it is. So Paul's reminding the church. And he's doing so because he says this. The last phrase of verse 15. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. The grace of God that's been given to me ties him back to Romans 1.5. In Romans 1.5, Paul has said, we have received the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations for the sake of his name. I'm going to proclaim Christ among all ethnicities, among all peoples, for the sake that they come to faith in Christ and his name is exalted. That's what the Lord has called me to do is what Paul's saying. Paul is speaking to the purpose of his life as he was set apart by Christ. He was saved and called by God's grace to make Christ known. Uniquely as an apostle. And listen, while I'm not an apostle and Jordan isn't going to someday become an apostle and nobody else in this room is going to become an apostle, are you guys clear on that? None of us are apostles. None of us will become, in spite of the new apostolic reformation, there aren't any new apostles. Paul was an apostle, but in spite of the fact that I'm not an apostle, nor is Jordan, nor is any other gospel minister we're sending out, we're all being ordained and commissioned ministers of the word of God. And we're being ordained and commissioned ministers of the word of God by the grace of God. Paul knows, as a minister of the word, that Christ did not merely suffer as the victim for us. A lot of times we talk about the cross, and we say Christ went to the cross he was battered. He was persecuted. He was mistreated. He was unjustly charged. If you suffer injustice, not even close to the holy, innocent, undefiled one suffering injustice. All of this came upon him. He went to the cross where he was crucified, stripped, humiliated, and he died. And we see all that passive language and we think well Christ is the victim and I mean the victim in the sense of the offered sacrificial lamb he's that we say look at how he suffered as a victim that's true but it's not merely that he suffered as a victim that we have to understand it's that he is the great high priest who offered himself as the victim he made an active offering of himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins he didn't just suffer, he offered himself unto death. 
And he sent his spirit to apply all that to us. And so we, as ministers of the gospel, toil in the priestly service of the gospel of God. A minister is a servant. If you look there when he says that in verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. That word minister and the kind of priestly service we're talking about here is the language here of the service in religious practices that happen in worship. Namely, this is the language that's applied to old covenant priests and what they would do as they served or ministered in the temple. And so the minister of the gospel has a kind of service, a ministry given to the church in leading her worship. Paul served in a specific capacity, the capacity of gospel ministry as an apostle, but the principle applies to all gospel ministers. Paul doesn't just call himself, though, a servant in this sense. In Romans 1.1, when he starts out, Paul, a doulos, Jesu Christu, in other words, a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Notice what he's saying. I'm owned by and serving a master. It's not just I'm a servant in the sense that I minister among Christ's people in the context of worship. It's also that I'm a slave. He owns me and I serve him. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I've been set apart for this. Further, Paul calls himself a servant in the sense of a deacon. Look at Romans 15.8, Romans 15.8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, notice that, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. So here is, by the way, Paul referring, sorry, to Christ as a deacon. Christ is a deacon, he'll refer to himself this way in a number of places also. What is a deacon? Someone who concerns himself with the needs of others, that kind of servant. He's concerned himself with the needs of others. As an example of this, think of the collection for the offering for the needs in the church in Jerusalem as there was a famine, which he gets into in Romans 15.25. Paul is a slave of Jesus Christ, bought and owned by and serving him. Paul is a priestly servant in the worship of Christ's church, leading his people, ministering to them in that context. Paul is a deacon who goes and gathers an offering to take care of the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem suffering a famine. This set of words is used of the gospel minister. You're a slave of Christ. You're not your own. You serve your master. You're a deacon who serves the needs of Christ's people. That means there's no job too small and too mundane for you. No job too small and too mundane to you. Sometimes folks have mundane needs and you're called to help. Is it true that gospel ministers ought to divide their labors so that the ministers of the word can focus on prayer and preaching? Yes. So that we're not excessively bogged down with mundane needs. That's true. But that does not mean the minister of Christ is above those needs. And we need to distinguish that. I often hear guys saying, well, I preach and pray and study 
and other people take care of the mundane needs of people, that's a distraction from the priestly service of worship for the pastor, the minister of the word. I want to say, no, what you're being taught there in Acts 6 when the apostles come after that is not we're above serving the needs of these widows. That's the point there. It's not we're above serving the needs of these widows. It's that we've been doing that, and it's become such a major need. We need other men to step in to help with that so we can focus on preaching the word in prayer, not because we're above doing that kind of service or we're avoiding doing that kind of service. You're doing it all. The mundane needs something. Sometimes you're unclogging a toilet in a church building as a minister of the gospel. You're not above it. Sometimes people have broken down on the side of the road and you're the only one with flexibility in your schedule to come and change their tire. You're not above it. You just go do it. Don't call me, though. I don't know how to do that. (laughs) Call Jason. I'm not above it. I'm just unskilled in it. We're servants of all. You're also a priestly servant in that you minister the gospel to folks in public worship, in private admonition, and evangelism. And in all these cases, you're being spent for Christ and his church. As with Paul, you endure everything for the sake of the elect. Not some things. Everything. There are other analogies that drive this language home. Look with me at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy in chapter 2. Paul gives three analogies here as he calls on Timothy, a man he's trained, raised up in the faith. He says to Timothy in verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I entrusted it to you, and you're able to teach others also, so you do the same. Now look what he goes on to say in verse 3. You're going to see three analogies. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. Mull on this. Consider it. Contemplate it. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's consider those three analogies briefly. The undistracted soldier, the rule-keeping athlete, and the hardworking farmer. The undistracted soldier. What he's getting at is you are single-mindedly and single-heartedly devoted to this calling, no matter the suffering that comes with it. Anything that gets in the way is a distraction from your primary calling. Brother, going to seminary costs your family in some ways. In some ways. But receiving the call to the ministry after that, that costs you and your family in every way. Your first question is never. I know this might scandal a nation filled with focus on the family. But as a gospel minister, your first question is never, is this good for my family? That is never your first question. Your first question is always, is this what Christ has given me to do? Is this what he's given me to do? Christ is for your family. You do what he's given you to do. You trust him with them. Good soldiers never determine the field of battle. Good soldiers never determine the length of time they're there. 
And good soldiers never consider the conditions of their calling. It isn't as soon as seminary's done, you and Chantel figure out where you'd really like to be and what you find most comfortable and whether or not you want to serve there a long time or a short time. You ask the question, is this where the Lord's sending us? And if so, you go. We are soldiers as gospel ministers who undistractedly do our duty. We do not determine our station or our rations, and we do not determine the probability of success in the battle. We just do our duty. Soldiers just obey orders and go where they're told. They suffer however they must, for they have one objective, one mission, a mission that's above all others. And they offer themselves on the field of battle of this end. I want you to hear this. Because, listen, if you're in any form of war, battle as a soldier, or you're there going into a setting as a police officer or a firefighter, every one of these people knows one thing. There's one objective, one purpose, and I offer myself to that end, and I don't consider anything else except getting that one thing done. And, brother, this often costs your family in so many ways. Look at Luke 14. Keep your hand there in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, and look over at Luke 14. And look at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, that being Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Please hear that, every Christian. You cannot come to Christ with reserve that you're holding back. When Christ grabs hold of you, when he changes your heart, you are his. There's nothing you retain for yourself. Your allegiance is to him. Your allegiance is not to your mom. It's not to your dad. It's not to your brother. It's not to your sister. It's not to your children. It's not even to your own life. Your allegiance is to Christ. Now, do we struggle with that? Sure. Is that hard? Yes. Do we waver? Of course. Of course. But Christ gives you the grace to carry on. Now, look what he goes on to say. Whoever, verse 27, does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing a cross isn't like, you know, I've got a difficult mother-in-law, I'm bearing my cross. It's not what it's talking about. Bearing your cross is picking up the instrument of your death. You won't carry the instrument of your death. In other words, forsake yourself. You can't be my disciple. Verse 28, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first set down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Listen, here's the point. 
You don't want to start building something if you haven't counted the cost to see if you have enough to complete it. So the question is, have you counted the cost? Are you ready to lay it all down? Has your wife counted the cost? Have you thought through what's coming? Do you understand that you're bringing your family into the middle of a spiritual battle with principalities and powers? This will be costly for you and your wife and your children in ways you have not likely considered yet. Listen to what J.W. Alexander, this is a Princeton theologian from, if you will, the old Princeton, 1800s, the Princeton that was sending out one-third of its graduates from seminary to missions. I haven't heard of a seminary doing that at all anymore. That Princeton, listen to what he says. Whatever business you undertake, whatever purpose you mature, which is not in subservience to these ends, is a dereliction of your proper duty. Labor to impress upon your mind the truth that your powers, your labors, your life are to be exhausted in this one cause. Concentrate your mind and your efforts upon this single point and break away from every occupation and every enjoyment which lies out of this clearly defined path. So we are undistracted soldiers. And second, we are rule-keeping athletes In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 5, he says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You run hard in accord with God's commands. You don't set the rules in the race. You guys understand that? When you enter a competition, you don't enter the competition and say, Now that I've entered, I'd like to declare what the rules are. You don't do that. It has rules. You enter. Some people like to try to declare the rules. They're called cheaters. And when they get caught, they get disqualified. You don't set the rules of the race, you run it. The Lord has set the rules for you in Scripture. Josh, when you go, you don't have to come up with new rules or new methods or ideas. The Scripture has told you what they are. God doesn't need you to come up with new ones. He hasn't, like, thought, you know, there are some things I haven't thought of. Those are good ideas. Thanks, little creature, for informing me of things I should have done. He's not asked you how ministry is to be done. He's told you how it's to be done. He has given you a race to run. He's marked out a course for you. And he's told you the rules. Now you run it as one who wants to finish the race. You're a minister of Christ, an under-shepherd, and his rule is found in his word. You do what his book says. Your authority is derivative, means It's derived from the word of God, not yourself. Your authority is circumscribed, meaning it's contained here. You don't get to add to it. And your authority is always ministerial, meaning you're a servant and never a magistrate or a king. So you become an undistracted soldier who runs the race hard in accord with the rules And finally, notice that last analogy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Farmers work morning to evening. If you know anything about farmers, they are the hardest working people you'll ever meet. 
Because it doesn't matter if it's rain or shine, flood or drought, insect infestation or poor crop yields. They are tilling, sowing, watering, and harvesting without fail. The hardworking farmer puts his hand to the plow and he never looks back. He sows, he waters, God gives the increase. He doesn't get to start his work of farming where he labors and toils all year knowing what his crop yield will be at the end of the year. He just keeps working, trusting God's providence to produce what he produces. This is the work that must be done regardless of the cost. Look at Luke 9. Luke 9 and verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, now this is Jesus and largely his disciples here. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That is an odd response. Right? If you don't stop and think, what's he saying? I'll follow you wherever you go. He doesn't say, that's commendable. I'm thankful for followers like you who will go wherever I go. No, what he says is, foxes have holes, birds of their nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, are you sure? Because this is going to be terrible. You want to follow me wherever I go? Where I go, there's nowhere to lay your head. There's nowhere to store up treasure. There's no soft bed to lay on. You sure you want to come with me? Are you ready to forsake physical and emotional comfort and well-being? You're not going to be able to, if you will, spend your life every time it's hard in the ministry, laying in a corner somewhere in the fetal position, sucking your thumb, self-soothing. You have to get up and do your job. Whether it's painful or not. You do it. You forsake the highest of earthly duties at home. Look at verse 59. This is the highest of earthly duties. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That is sort of, if you will, the highest of earthly duties. You honor your father and mother. You go and bury them. Let me go and bury my father and mother. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, you're forsaking the highest of earthly duties at home. Your eyes are set on the task before you and not upon what's left behind. Look at verse 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's no looking back. There's no looking back. Let's say this. Josh, you and Bree are going, there's no looking back. You're forsaking your highest earthly duties. You're leaving behind all your parents who are aging to go do this one task. There's no looking back. You go. You put your hand to the plow. And you till. And you sow. And you pray. You water. And you wait for God to give the increase. This is what gospel ministers are called to do. 
We offer ourselves to Christ in the proclamation of his word. We follow Christ to the cross. J.W. Alexander wrote this. I want you to hear this. You are right in considering yourself as no longer your own. And should you be allowed by God to be put in trust or stewardship of the gospel, you are forever to forsake pleasing men or seeking their favor. It is God who tries the heart to whom you are to commend yourself. I trust that you have made an unreserved sacrifice of yourself to the Lord. I trust you've made that, that you've laid your health, your substance, your time, your endowments, your reputation, and your life at the foot of the cross. The Lord Jesus claims you henceforth as a servant. Have you counted the cost? Have you reflected upon all the possible privations and sufferings which you may be called to endure? And are you now living with a cheerful and cordial disposition of soul to relinquish all things to your Lord? These are the questions of the moment. Let them therefore be carefully weighed and answered with caution and sincerity. Have you laid it all at the foot of the cross? Joyfully. Your sole business is to offer yourself in gospel ministry for the glory of God and salvation of souls. Please hear that, young, up-and-coming gospel ministers. Count the cost. Look at 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6. After Paul charges Timothy, Paul's in prison here. He's about to be martyred. Paul ends up being martyred for the faith. He's about to be martyred. He knows he's about to be martyred. This is the end of his life. Look how he sums it up. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, drink offerings are old covenant sacrifices that were often part of covenant ratification. Paul is not saying that the new covenant is ratified in his blood. That is not his point. Rather, Paul's martyrdom is a sacrificial offering to the honor of the grace of God and his gospel. If you will, his death is giving full proof to his gospel calling and service. I don't know if we think about it that way. When this man is martyred, he's not ratifying the new covenant. Christ's blood ratified the new covenant. Paul writes that in Hebrews. What he's saying here is that his martyrdom is giving full proof to his gospel ministry, to the fact that he has poured himself out unto death for the honor of Christ and his gospel. It's Paul's joy to honor the gospel with the offering of his own life unto death. And friends, he's not asking the church to pity him in that offering. You should be compassionate when you see a gospel minister suffering. That's fine. Be compassionate. But don't pity them. Don't pity them. They are offering themselves. I hear this often, like, oh man, our missionaries are in a tough field and we really can't tell them hard things because that will be so unsettling for them because they're struggling and striving and discouraged and having a hard time and if we come and tell them this hard thing, that's gonna rattle their cage a little bit more and won't that be difficult? Listen, they offered themselves without reserve for the honor of Christ and his name among the nations. We do not need to spare their feelings. We tell them the truth. Yes, we're compassionate, but we are never pitying them. 
Paul doesn't ask the church to pity him. He asks the church to rejoice with him that he's counted worthy to suffer for the name. Listen now, he uses the same language. Don't turn there, but listen, in Philippians 2.17, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, that's the spilling of his blood and martyrdom, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. His death is approaching, and his whole life is offered to the Lord. He's being poured out like a drink offering. And this is not a grim moment for him. This is a joyful offering unto the Lord. Brothers, do you hear that? Have you counted that cost? Are you ready to joyfully offer yourself unto the pouring out of your very life? Jordan, you have these seminary years to count the cost. Don't take it lightly. But here's a follow-up question that comes, which is, how do we offer ourselves? In other words, what's the work that we offer as ministers of Christ? We're to offer ourselves. Great. How? What's the work? Second point, and these last two will come kind of quickly. Make the priestly offering of gospel proclamation. You're making the priestly offering of gospel proclamation. Look again at Romans 15. Romans 15 and verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What is this priestly service in the gospel that Paul's referring to? Now, Paul goes on to say he's going to offer the fruit of that service to the Lord, and we'll look at that in our third point. But let me ask this. For now, what is our service that makes our offering acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit? See, that offering must be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So what is our offering that accomplishes that? In fact, that offering is acceptable because it's sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So how does that occur? How does that occur? Look down at Romans 15 and look at verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition. In other words, this is another way of saying my highest honor. It's my highest honor. To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I should build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. See, it is my highest honor. It is the pursuit of my life to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. In other words, what Paul's saying is, the way he makes this offering is the proclamation of the gospel. He proclaims the gospel, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies the church or his people through the proclamation of the gospel. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. Paul's going to say this. Speaking of Christ, verse 28, him, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, how do I present someone mature in Christ, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, an acceptable offering to him by proclaiming him, warning and admonishing everyone? For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is another way of Paul saying that my strength is actually the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in and through me as I proclaim the gospel. 
He is the one, the Holy Spirit, who does the washing of regeneration, giving of new life and renewal. He's the one who gives life to dead souls. He's the one who opens blinded eyes. He's the one who gives hearing to the spiritually deaf. He does all that, but I preach the word, and he does it. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I know we've been there already, but look to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Listen to how Paul commands Timothy. Verse 1. I charge you, here's the charge, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, by the way, this charge is already being exalted in a significant way. Before he even tells you what it is, it's in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, our mediator. Who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Think of that foundation. Now, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Like the farmer who works hard in season and out of season, you preach the word in season and out of season. You reprove, you rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. See, proclaim and apply the word of God with much patience and careful instruction. Jordan, be clear-headed in every situation. Bear every difficulty you encounter in ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Proclaim Christ in the pulpit of the church and proclaim him among the populace outside the church doors. Exert every effort, remove every hindrance, excoriate every distraction, exhaust every breath to fulfill your ministry. Brother, you're going to become a watchman. You've already been a watchman as an elder in this church, but as a full-time minister of the word, you warn people of the danger of remaining in their sins. You warn people of the certain judgment that is coming for all who are not hidden in the cleft of the rock who is Christ. You must plead with people to look to Christ for salvation. You must command them to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Christ made his calling clear, and you're his emissary. Nothing more and nothing less. You must warn people, if you are not covered with Christ and his righteousness, then Christ will cover himself with your blood as he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. That's the urgency of gospel ministry. No gospel minister is urgent. No gospel minister will suffer if he does not believe that people in their sins are going to hell. You will shy away from offending men if you do not believe that the greatest indignity you can do them is not to offend them, but to leave them in their sins to perish eternally. So this is your one job. You preach Christ and him crucified. We offer ourselves, and we do so through gospel proclamation. And thirdly, we make the priestly offering of the fruit of our work to Christ. Romans 15, 16, notice what he says there about his priestly offering. 
He offers the fruit of his work to Christ. Verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Notice, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is your priestly offering as a minister of Christ. See, look around at these people here. As one of their pastors, they are my offering to the Lord. They're an acceptable offering because of the work of the Holy Spirit and bringing them to faith and sanctifying them. As we proclaim him, admonishing and warning everyone. And brother, the church is your joy and your crown, your offering to the Lord. Listen to Philippians 4.1. Paul will express this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Hear what Paul's saying? You all may not feel the weight of this the way gospel ministers do. But we joyfully bear the burden or the weight of your souls day in and day out, prayerfully. And so when you depart, for good reasons, I'm not even talking about for bad ones. Jordan and Chantel going to South Carolina. Josh and Bree going, good reasons. When you depart for good reasons or for bad, there's a kind of cutting in our hearts that happens. But I'm not sure how to explain to you except to say, we love you and long for you. You're our joy and crown. And when you leave, it's hard. Doesn't mean you shouldn't leave when it's good to leave. That's not my point. But it's difficult. It's difficult because this is what you are to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. Listen to Paul say it again. For what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Josh, whatever church you plant, that's going to be your joy, your glory, your boast before the Lord, your crown, what you offer him. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit, not by you. Thank God, right? But one day you'll leave and you'll long for them. The same is true, Jordan, when you go to Greenville, wherever the Lord sends you after that. My academic achievements and my published books and the parachurch ministries that I helped start, like Radius or Providence Classical Academy, the conference speaking I do, the films I'm making, the church buildings that we all hope come soon, are not our joy and crown. They are not my joy and crown. They are not what I offer to the Lord Jesus. Am I thankful the Lord has been pleased to do that work? Yes, of course. Am I pleased to hear how it helps people? Yes, of course. But when one of these little children I see running, I see born, I see grow up into a toddler, I see running the halls, going out to Sunday school, coming back in. When those little children grow up hearing the word of the Lord in this church and continue to walk with him, there is no joy like that. There is no joy like that.
When I'm privileged to walk along, and some of you are those people, the same group of people for decades, and I see your conversion to Christ and your baptism and your continuing in the faith and your joys and your sorrows and your successes and your failures and your sufferings and groaning in the face of great loss, your mighty struggles against sin and your small beginnings in holiness, your growing maturity as the Lord keeps hold of you until the end, there is no joy or crown like that. None. And the longer you continue, the more mindful you become of how utterly dependent of all that is upon the Holy Spirit as he applies the word of God to these dear souls. So I exhort you in the words of J.W. Alexander, the sum of all is this. Give yourself up soul, body, and spirit to the ministry of the gospel. Other things, however great, attractive, or delightful, are nothing to you. May we be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that great day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the privilege of knowing Christ and being saved by him. And we're thankful that you have, by your spirit, set apart gospel ministers. We pray that not only would we as a church walk in godliness and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, but that we would pray for you to raise up more workers for the harvest field and to bless them as powerful ministers of the gospel by the working of your spirit. We're thankful that you've blessed this church with many. We pray you would bless us with many more and that we would see Christ's name ring forth in every tribe and tongue and nation. In Jesus' name, amen.